Let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 1 again. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at verses 16 and 17. And then last week, we looked at verses 18 through... Actually, we got down through to verse 21. And today, I'd like to pick it up there with uh, 22, obviously. And and uh, hopefully, we can make it down through the rest of the chapter, down through verse... 32, so that's my objective. But uh, to begin with, before we review, let's, let's just start reading in verse 16 and just read down through the end of the chapter. And as we read those first uh, eight or ten verses or so, try to refresh your mind uh, as to things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then we'll uh, pick it up with verse 22. So beginning in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, for the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen, having been understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. (laughs) He doesn't mince words, does he? Uh, Obviously, this is a a very uh, difficult passage to think about and contemplate, but it's important. 
and um, hopefully by the end we'll actually find uh, some hope for encouragement as we uh, think about these things. But uh, by way of review, what kind of things do you remember that we talked about last week? Particularly last week we focused on verses 18 through uh, 21. Uh, what are some of the things that we focused on last week that you recall? Okay. Okay. So we talked quite a bit about this uh, <coughs> the concept of general revelation as opposed to special revelation. General revelation is the revelation uh, of God, the uh, the revelation that God makes of Himself in creation. What does that include? What kind of things does God reveal about Himself in creation? Okay. 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 What does Paul specifically tell us is revealed in creation? Okay. God's uh, invisible attributes, his, uh, uh, his invisible nature, the things about God, many of the things that w- about God that we cannot see are revealed to us uh, in creation. So, for example, Milford listed his, mentioned his, uh, that he's a God of order. We see, uh, we see, his, we see his, uh, his infinite wisdom. We see uh, his uh, love, his kindness. Uh, he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Uh, and on and on and on. We can go about many things about God that we see in creation. What else does Paul list or mention? Pardon? His power, his, uh, his, uh, his great uh, power that God has. And we see that, uh, of course, in creation. And we see it uh, in all different aspects of creation. We see it in the display of the heavens. Uh, when we think about things like uh, the universes and all the power that it takes to hold them in place and make them function the way they do, and we look at the storms that we live through here in Oklahoma, and the wind comes through, and we have our big, strong structures that we put up, and God just comes through with a puff of wind and blows them over, and, and uh, or, or we think about uh, any number of aspects of creation reveal the power of God. So all these various things are revealed in creation. Are these things uh, that God reveals in, his, in creation, are they uh, uh, to the unbelieving mind, or, to, or excuse me, to the, to the uninitiated mind, to the person who, who's, who's not maybe heard the gospel or read the Bible or whatever, are these things about God in creation, are they obscure or are they clear to them? What does Paul say? They're clearly seen. Okay. Paul says they're clearly seen. So, if someone says, well, I look at creation and I don't see those things, what's he or she really saying? Even though they're clear, they do take some thought. Okay. Okay. You've got to stop. You've got to pause. You've got to think about it. You can't just go on in life and just, you know, you've got to stop and contemplate it. Okay, okay. And that's the other thing that we talked about last week is, is, uh, is the fact 
that all of mankind, and that's the point of the passage, Paul here is dealing with the general state of mankind, that all men are in this condition, that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because they are unrighteous, because they don't want to acknowledge God, they don't want to honor God, they don't want to give thanks to God, because of that, even though these aspects of God and attributes of God are obvious or clear in creation, they're just clearly seen, to many people they are obscure because they have chosen to suppress the truth, he says, in unrighteousness. Now, since mankind has chosen to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, what has God done? Okay, well, you're getting ahead of me here. This We're still... Okay, back verse 18. Now, you're, you're right. Your answer is right, but you're getting ahead of me. God's wrath is revealed. Okay, so he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is revealed against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on and he tells he talks there uh, in verse 20 about how God has revealed himself and that it's very clear that God has revealed himself in creation. And then last week we finished up in verse 21 by talking about how that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And we talked about the two. Uh, I see what Paul is saying. There are kind of the two basic failures of man in respect to their knowledge of God, and that is that man did not want to honor God as God, <clears throat> excuse me, and they did not want to thank God for all that God is and does. And, uh, and I used, for example, uh, uh, Eve in the garden when she's confronted with the temptation at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the two things that we see, two things that we see that Eve failed to do there, which had she done... <laughs> would have made a completely different story for us to read. The two things she failed to do was she failed to honor God as God and she failed to give thanks. And because she failed to honor God as God or give thanks, she then goes on and takes of the fruit, takes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she sins and entices her husband to join her in that sin and and the rest is uh, history as they say. So... uh, So, with this happening then, because men refuse to uh, honor God or give thanks to God, uh, what is the result then in verse 21? Okay, and before that? They became futile in their their, uh, speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And we talked about what happens when we have a set of data, if you will, or when we have a certain uh, certain amount of evidence for something. And so we're trying to pursue this data. We're trying to pursue this evidence to see where it leads us. But we have precluded a certain conclusion. And we say we, we can't let the data lead us to this conclusion. And that conclusion happens to be the legitimate conclusion that you reach. What do you end up with? Foolish speculations and futile speculations. It's really futile to speculate from the data when you have precluded 
where that data is leading you. Okay? Uh, and a classic example, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but a classic example of that would be the whole issue of intelligent design. And the naturalist precludes from the outset the possibility of a designer. That's out of the question. We cannot let the data lead us there. So how, whatever the data says, it does not tell us there is a designer. Okay? And so then he tries to find explanations for the data. Why, why does the data represent this or this? But he's precluded the possibility of, in this case, a designer. And so all of his speculations are futile. Okay. What's so interesting, Rick, on that is that some of the more honest uh, skeptics will actually say that conclusion, God, that's unacceptable. And so then they'll go on and say, so therefore the data means something absurd. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But they'll actually, the honest ones will say yeah. that they yeah. are precluding that. Yes. From the very outset. Absolutely. Yeah. What is the, I'm sorry, uh, several months ago, I had received an email, and there was this site in Turkey that had been buried under sand as they started excavating. They had found so far five, basically the equivalent of five stone and they're arranged in such an order. And they're wondering who did this, how long ago, <laughs> all this. I can't find any tools. I don't know how they did it. And I'm looking at that and I can't help but wonder how many of those people in there are foolish enough to to discount that they're going And they, they, they sit there and they can look at this and go, well, somebody built this. Yeah. But they can't even imagine a creator that will invent the eye. They think they, they don't believe yeah. that shifting sand can build this, but they can breathe and leave the lightning strike and some more of ooze. Yeah. They can leave the light. Yeah. Well, that's just one example of how mankind, mankind's speculations become futile. And then the other thing he says is that their foolish heart was darkened. And we talk about how when the Scripture talks about the heart, it's not talking about our little muscle here, but it's talking about the seat of, of what we are as people, our intellect, our emotion, our will. All of that is kind of wrapped up in the idea of the heart. And, and what Paul is saying here is that our whole being now has been shrouded in this darkness that precludes us from seeing uh, the truth of the gospel and precludes us from seeing uh, the truth about God. So those are some of the things we talked about last week. And so let's pick it up in verse 22. And as I told you last week, I was planning to stop at verse 23. And that in itself is somewhat of an arbitrary break. So I make no apologies for breaking a couple verses earlier. Either way, anyway, we break it. It's a little arbitrary. But in verse 22, he goes on. Since their foolish hearts uh, are darkened and they're futile in their speculation. Then he says in verse 22 that professing to be wise, they became fools. So what we have is this, we have this, uh, this uh, uh, ironic situation here where people have suppressed the knowledge of God. And because they have suppressed the knowledge of God, their speculations are futile and their hearts are darkened. And yet, what do they think of themselves? They think they're pretty smart, okay? Because they've been able to take the data, so to speak, and construct something else to replace God. And so they look at what they've done of taking this data and coming up with this idol that they worship instead of God, and they say, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm pretty smart. I am wise. 
But what God says is that you're not wise, you're a fool. Okay? Professing to be wise, they actually became fools, he said. And it's important for us to remember here that when the Scripture uses the word fool, it typically means it in a different sense than we mean it today. Okay? When we say, oh, so-and-so is a fool, usually we think they're just an idiot. You know, they're just lacking information and they're just clueless. Okay? That's what we think of. <clears throat> but, uh, and, and because of that, it, we find it a little difficult at times to understand uh, what Jesus says about, about when someone calls somebody a fool, they are deserving of hellfire. And we go, wait a minute, what's, what's the deal here? There are some people that really are clueless, you know. And so why is it wrong to point that out? But in Scripture, the idea of, of a fool is he's clueless, but there's a moral aspect to it. He's clueless because he is morally depraved, okay? And as you read through Proverbs, as you go through Proverbs and you encounter the fool in Proverbs, it's clear that it's not just somebody who's clueless, but it's somebody who's clueless because of the moral implications of their life, okay? And because of the moral choices that they make. And so God says here that they have become fools. And then we see the ultimate expression of their folly. In verse 23, he says, And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so, so what we begin to encounter here in these next series of verses, beginning in 23 and down through the end of the chapter, are two sets of three. We have three exchanges that mankind makes. And you'll notice the first one is there in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God. And then in verse uh, 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then in verse 26, the women exchange the natural function. In verse 27, men did the same thing. So you have three exchanges that are made in this passage. The exchanging of the glory of God, uh, the exchanging of the truth for a lie, and the exchanging of the natural function for the unnatural function. You have three exchanges. And in response to those three exchanges, you have three manifestations of the wrath of God. Remember back in verse 18, he said, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now he's going to tell us how that wrath is revealed and what prompts the revelation of that wrath. So, in response to these three exchanges that mankind makes, there are three responses on God's part where He gives mankind over. And He uses that exact phrase three times. The first time is in verse 24 where He says, God gives them over to the desires or passions of their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, God gives them over to degrading passions. And in verse 28, uh, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Okay, So as you read this passage, you want to think in terms of these two sets of three. The three exchanges that mankind makes and the three responses of God, the three demonstrations of God's wrath, the three giving overs that God does to man in response to man's sinful choices and man's sinful actions. And this displays, for this, this demonstrates for us uh, kind of the total predicament, depravity, condition 
of mankind. As we mentioned, this first description that Paul launches into in chapter 1 here is a description of mankind in general. All men fall into this category. And then he'll go on in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and he'll narrow it down. And in chapter 2, he's going to talk about all you people here who look at these verses and you go, well, I'm not like that. And then Paul, uh, Paul will deal with you next at the beginning of chapter 2. And then later in chapter 2 and on into chapter two, 3, Paul will begin to deal with the Jews who say, well, we're not like that and we're not like these people in chapter... We're not like the people in chapter 1 and we're not like the people in chapter 2 because we have the law of Moses. And then Paul will deal with the Jews. And by the time we get to the end, we'll see by the middle of chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's where Paul is going. Okay? But he begins by this general description of man. And in beginning this general description of man, he mentions these three exchanges that man makes and the three manifestations of God's wrath that God makes in response to that. Now, I... The, the question that I wrestle with as I, as I look at this is, um, is this, uh, what is Paul describing here in these two sets of threes? Is, is he describing kind of just one, uh, one basic condition or act or situation from three different angles? So is he looking at just one thing that happens kind of at one point in history, so to speak, or at one point in the life of an individual, is he just looking at one thing and he's describing it from three different angles? Or is this actually a process or a progression that takes place? Okay? And, and you could probably go either way on it, but I tend, as I view it, as I read it, I tend to see that what Paul is describing here is a progression that takes place. Okay? And, and there's uh, uh, two or three reasons why I see it that way. And one is because uh, you'll notice that Paul moves in the passage. He moves uh, from the past tense to the present tense. OK, so that by the time we get to verse uh, uh, 20, uh, uh, 20 or 32, excuse me, he says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who regular. That's in the present tense. But earlier in the passage, he was talking in the past tense. Okay. So, so there's this progression of from past to present uh, is one reason I think there's a progression uh, represented there. Uh, another reason is because what we see is God is responding to man's choices. Man does something and then God responds. Obviously, there's a progression there. So, the only question is whether or not there's a progression in these three exchanges and a progression in the three uh, steps of God's wrath. Uh, and, and it seems to me that that is the case. And then the, another reason I think it, that we can see a progression here as opposed to just kind of one description from three different angles, if you will, is because it, actually our experience demonstrates this, doesn't it? In our experience, we see this kind of progression take place in the lives of people around us, in our own lives, in societies, in cultures, in nations, we see this kind of progression. Now, having said that, I want to, I want to enter this caveat here. Is that I think this passage is kind of a general description. And we would be perhaps mistaken if we tried to find in any specific individual each one of these steps revealed. Clearly, there are some people who go through their whole life 
who never embrace the gospel, who suppress the truth and the righteousness, but never be, never begin practicing homosexual practices, right? Or we might look at that verse of a list of 21 vices beginning there in verse 29 and down through verse 31. And we might say, well, I know some people who are unbelievers and and while some of these things are true in their life, not all of these things are true in their lives. OK, so so I think we do need to be careful how we use the passage, that this is a general description that Paul is making and that I don't think that you could find in any one person's life an exact parallel of this progression, but that generally this type of progression is true. This is what happens in the life of the person who suppresses the knowledge of God is that he moves from one sin to greater sin to greater sin to greater sin. And to some degree, that movement from lesser to greater sin is a display of the wrath of God on his or her life. I think that's true on an individual level. And because it's true on an individual level, it becomes more obviously true. We can see it more clearly when we put a bunch of people together. So when I read this passage, I can see very clearly this pattern in human history. I can see this pattern in the, in, in, in the, uh, the story of, of scriptures as we read through scriptures, beginning in the garden and going on down. You can see that progression taking place. Uh, you see it particularly before the flood. In our study of Genesis, we saw how quickly things went downhill as man began to reject the knowledge of God. And it got so serious at one point that God just had to stop it. He had to interrupt it with the flood, start over again with Noah and his family, and then institute certain restraints. In this case, it was government that God instituted after the flood to restrain this tendency of man towards evil. Uh, and that that restraint has remained largely in place. And now even today, we see this tendency in cultures and societies. But there's another restraint now that we have in place today, uh, particularly in our own culture. And what is that? Church? Yeah, it's you. <laughs> it's the church of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It's the truth of God. Which, which we, uh, yeah, give him his strokes now, pat him on the back, uh, which, we, which we live out. As we live out the truth of the gospel, that serves as a restraining influence on the wickedness in the world. Okay. Now, but still, what we see as we look at society and we look at culture, we see this movement of evil forward. So as I look at my country today, I can see as I read this passage, I go, oh yeah, I see that going on. I see that going on. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Some of the churches are, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so given with uh, given those uh, perspectives in mind as we go forward. Uh, now let's just take some time and let's look at these two sets of threes that Paul sets before us. And the first is the first exchange in verse 23. They exchange the glory of God for the image of the form of corruptible man. Of the incorruptible. They exchange the uh, glory of the incorruptible God, he says. And this is one of the most incredible things to me. 
as I contemplate what we do, when we contemplate who is this God we're talking about? This incorruptible and glorious God. And, and we can think, we can go back and we can think about passages in Scripture which, which even as you read the passages, you see how the author is just struggling to try to somehow give us some sense of the glory of God. For example, Ezekiel's passage where he talks about the wheels and, and the creatures and all that sort of thing. And he goes on and on there in the early part of Ezekiel talking about the glory of God. And it's very clear he's just he's struggling. He cannot tell us what he's seen because it is so spectacular. It's so glorious. Or we have the encounter of the children of Israel with God at Mount Sinai. And God comes down actually on Mount Sinai. And there's the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the smoke. And then God speaks to them, speaks to the whole nation. And what's their response? They cower in fear. They cower in fear, but more than that, what do they do? What do they ask for? What do they ask? Ask Moses. Don't speak to us. Yeah, God, don't speak to us anymore. We can't take this. This is too terrifying. So if Moses can handle it, fine. He can go out and talk to you and he can come back and tell us what he saw and what he heard. Okay. So when Moses goes up and he talks to God, this glorious, spectacular God, and he comes back, what do we, what do we encounter? You can't look at him because just what has rubbed off on him of the glory of God is so bright, they can't even look at Moses. This is the glory that we're talking about. Or we can go to Revelations chapter 4 and chapter 5 where it talks about the Lamb and the glory of the Lamb and He that is worthy and all the angels. And we, and we see this host of, of angels around the throne of God who always, constantly, since the moment of their creation and forever and ever and ever will be saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the God revealed in creation. This is the God we know if we look at creation and we see and understand what creation is trying to tell us. Is this glorious and incorruptible God who Paul says dwells in unapproachable light. But I don't want that God. And you didn't want that God. And so what do we do? We go out and we make an image of something corruptible. A man. A bird. A four-footed animal. A snake in the grass. And we have a classic example of that in the book of Exodus when Moses is up on the mountain for a long time and the children of Israel are going, well, you know, he's gone and we don't know what happened to him. And so they come to Aaron and they ask Aaron to do what? Make us a God. And so he makes them a God. You know what he told them after he made this God for him? What did he say to them? He said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. 
What was it? What did he make? He made the image of an ox that eats grass. That's what Psalm 120 says. 106 verse 20 says. They, he says, in Psalm 106 says, they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Now, it's interesting there he says their glory. This is the nation who worshipped and served the God who came down on the mountain and shook the mountain and did all that stuff and spoke to them and they were all scared and free because He was so glorious and He was so spectacular. And all over the world, this little group of two million people was known as the people who worshipped that God. That was their glory. Their glory was that God. And within days of that experience, they made a trade. And they said, we don't want that God anymore. Because this is too hard doing it this way. So, we're going to trade off that God and we're going to worship and serve this thing, this image of an ox that eats grass. Now that, is a darkened heart. And yet, that's what we do every time we worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And none of the other commentators remarked on this, so maybe I'm pulling something out of you know out of this out of my hat here. But it is interesting to me. There's a progression there. He says they made an image of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. And it almost seems like it's a downhill thing, doesn't it? First it was man. You know, and then it was the birds that fly in the sky and you know, they're pretty awesome. And then it's the, you know, they just walk on the ground like the ox that eats grass. And then it's the snakes in the grass. And if there is a progression there, it's interesting to me, we don't do that any longer, do we? We don't make idols out of images of men, you know, in our sophisticated Western culture. We don't make idols out of things like that. We make idols out of what? Pardon? We make idols out of celebrities. We make idols out of money. We make idols out of our computers. We make idols out of technology. We've gone even further down the line. Because now we're not even making idols out of things God created. We're making idols out of things we've created. Yes. Our ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They're not physical images, they're ideas and concepts, yeah. Very good. I, I thought it was interesting that uh, all the time they've been saying, you know, I would have told you a lot of a tiger or an eagle or something glorious. And yeah. They chose an ox. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you, kind of, you kind of wonder. Of course, part of that's a cultural thing, but yeah, you kind of wonder about that. Well, God was not happy with this. And so his response in verse 24 is God gave them over. And this is the first manifestation of the wrath of God. 
Now, as I pointed out to you last week, the wrath of God that he's talking about in Romans is a current manifestation. This is not a wrath of God that's off in the future in the day of the Lord. This is a wrath of God that is currently, presently being revealed. Now, now this God of ours who is... uh, uh, for whom one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, why would he even bother revealing his wrath now? I mean, why doesn't he just wait and do it all in the end? Why does he bother to reveal his wrath presently while we're still here? As, as much as it seems like we're turning things on, in head, on its head, it's an act of grace. The wrath of God revealed now is an act of His mercy and grace to show His displeasure in order that we might turn and repent while we have a chance. So He reveals His wrath and the first thing He does in the revelation of His wrath, the first thing He does is He Give them over, okay? The idea here is that I have something that is mine, that I have control over, and and I'm going to turn it over and give it to Eddie. But don't you think for a minute I'm going to give you this Coke. (laughs) But I offer it to Eddie, and he takes it. Then it's his, okay? So, So, God is turning over. What is the idea there? Well, this goes back to the idea of restraint that we talked about a few minutes ago. But what God is doing here is He's releasing us or releasing a restraining influence on our life and opening the door so that sin can play its course. And we see that concept uh, in uh, several places in Scripture. Uh, for example, in Second Thessalonians in chapter 2, when Paul's talking about the end times, he talks about the restrainer being taken out of the way. And he says, and you know, who the, you know what the restrainer is. And we all go, well, no, we don't, Paul. We don't know what the restrainer is. But, uh, but uh, apparently he thought they did and knew that they should. So, and we do have some ideas of what the... But there is some restraining influence that at some point in the future is going to be taken away. Uh, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the case of the man who was caught in an incestuous relationship in the church, Paul says, I have decided to give, give such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in order that he might learn not to sin. And so there's that idea. And then in Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, it, it talks about God giving Israel over to walk in their own devices. So this is a concept that we encounter throughout Scripture that when man persists in his sin and stubbornly goes forward in his sin, there's a point at which God kind of opens the door a little wider. And He gives them over or He removes a restraining influence on their lives so that they can go forward in greater sin. Now, uh, this can create some theological problems for us, right? Because <laughs> then we go, well, does that mean the subsequent sin isn't sin? No, it doesn't mean that. For example, 
in the Garden of Eden, God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and He didn't put a fence around it. Right? He just said, don't eat of it. But it was entirely up to Adam and Eve from within themselves to make the choice not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? That was their responsibility. There was no restraint upon them. When they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, good and evil. <laughs> when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whose fault was it? God or theirs? It was theirs. It was theirs because they made the choice. Okay. So when God removes an external restraint on us and on our inclinations to sin, when God removes some external restraint, whatever that external restraint is. The test then becomes what choice I will make. What will I do? Will I exploit this opportunity to sin? Or will I, from within myself, choose and decide, no, I'm not going to do that? I will never forget when I first went to the University of Indiana in whenever that was, okay? Uh, and this was many, many, many years ago. And I had been, you know, I'd been raised in a Christian home. I'd. Uh, had lived at home until I was drafted into the army. And when I went into the army, I, I still had people telling me what to do and bossing me around and this and that. And, and then after I was in the army for a while, I got hooked up with the navigators and I had uh, the, the fellowship of the navigators around me strengthening me and helping me memorize scripture. I had all these restraints on my life. And then I got out of the service and I spent about another year with the NAS on Okinawa. And then I came back to the States and I went out to Indiana, to the University of Indiana to go to school. And suddenly I was completely free. I had nobody looking over my shoulder. And boy, did I feel it. All of a sudden I realized I'm out here. I'm all alone. Nobody knows who I am. There's nobody looking over my shoulder. I don't have anybody tell me when to get up, or when to go to bed. I'm on my own. I can do whatever I want. Now what are you going to choose? Fortunately, most of the choices I made were good. Not all of them. Fortunately, most of them were. But I felt it so cleanly. The lifting of restraint. And this is what God did when man exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox in his grass, so to speak, is that He released them to the passions, the desires of their hearts, He says, for impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Now, the word that he uses there, not my translation, it translates it lusts, but actually the word is just desires or passions. And it can be either good or bad. Some places in Scripture it's translated with a good connotation and more often it's translated with a negative connotation, but it can be either. But the idea there is that man has passions and desires. Man and women have passions and desires but that those desires are directed towards something that is impure. And God opens the door, lifts the restraint, so they can move forward to that in order that their bodies might be dishonored. Now, it seems pretty clear to me that he's talking about sexual temptation, sexual desires. okay? Because he talks about the dishonoring of their bodies and Paul makes it clear that sexual sin has some significant relationship to the body 
and dishonoring the body that no other sin has. Okay. Most, many commentators here see that this is just another reference to homosexuality. I don't think it is. Because I see this passage generally as a progression, I think that this is heterosexual sin here. So there's a heterosexual desire. The heterosexual desire can be either good or bad, right? Depending on what it's directed at. In this case, God has lifted the restraint of the heterosexual desire in a man or woman to use that God-given natural ability for something other than what God created and intended it for, which was the pleasure and the procreation within a monogamous loving relationship of a man and a woman. Okay, That's clear from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is part of God's created order. Jesus reaffirmed it in the Gospels. He made it very explicit. This is God's created order. And mankind has this God-given ability and desire, but it's directed towards something that's impure. And God has removed the restraint for that in order that our bodies might be dishonored. And so what we see happening here now is that man has set aside God and said, I'm not going to worship God. I'm going to worship creation. But when man decides to worship creation, what happens to the pinnacle of creation? It's dishonored, isn't it? We are the pinnacle of creation. They think, it's being they think creation is being honored. But in reality, the most honorable, the most esteemed, the pinnacle of creation is being dishonored. And it's true even today. In uh, a couple of years ago, I was uh, taking uh, uh, the roundtable class in ethics and I got the opportunity to do research and do a presentation on the modern ecological movement. And one of the things that's, that's really so uh, astonishing about this, the uh, modern ecological movement, and there's a great deal to be said for the preservation of God's creation and the beauty of God's, God's creation and guarding it and protecting it and all that sort of thing. But what has happened with the modern ecological movement is it's operating from a humanist or naturalist perspective. It's eliminated God. So it has made creation its God and it's worshiping God. And what happens then is while the rest of creation is worshipped, mankind is denigrated. Mankind is dishonored. Even to the extent that many within the ecological movement would make choices and decisions and laws regarding the preservation of creation that actually results in the death of human beings. This is what Scripture teaches us to expect. When we exalt creation above God, the end result is the pinnacle of creation. You and I end up being dishonored. A very good example of that are the current rules in China over that overpopulation. Yeah. And there are many other examples. Uh, examples of laws and things that restrict the growing of crops and, and, and technological advances and things that actually preserve and save human lives. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that the two main, when you talk about the history of the 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, it may just a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. I'm a historian. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, and I don't think it is. And that's my point. I, I, the point I was making at the beginning is that I think as we look at cultures and societies, in particular at our own culture and society, we see this progression taking place. Well, so, so mankind then, when that restraint was removed, man moved forward in that. And, uh, and, and to do so, he had to go a little bit further in his sin. So now he has not only exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass, to make it a simple way of putting it, but now we find in verse 25 that they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Your translation there probably says a lie. Literally, actually, I don't know why all the translations say a lie because literally, actually, the definite article is in there in the Greek and it really does say the lie. So they exchange the truth of God, all this truth that's revealed in creation, they have exchanged that and they have embraced instead a lie about God. That is the whole lie of idolatry. That there is something else that has led me out of Egypt, so to speak. There's something else that's brought me out of Egypt and it's not this glorious God of Sinai or the glorious God of Ezekiel or Isaiah or Revelation. It's not that glorious God that's brought me out of Egypt. But it's this image of this ox that eats grass or it's this image of this human being or it's, uh, or it's Zeus or it's this or it's that or it's my computers or my cars or my money or my house or my wife or my husband or my kids or my philosophies or my ideas or my education or my degree. Something else has brought me out of Egypt and something else will be my salvation. And so I have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and I've worshipped and served the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Art! What folly! What insanity! What, what would possess a person to make that kind of an exchange. To exchange the truth of God for the lie. And yet, we have done that. And God removed the restraint and we did it. And so now God comes with His third judgment, His third wrath, and that is, uh, excuse me, His uh, second wrath, and that is that He gave them over to degrading passions. Now, first, there were the passions which could be either good or bad. Heterosexual desires. And, and we directed them towards evil. And, and so, now God responds and in and, and redirecting them towards evil, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, etc. And now God responds by releasing us into these degrading passions. So, now this passion enters in which cannot be good in any context. And quite clearly, what he's talking about here is homosexual passion, okay, and homosexual desire. And, and it's very clear that this is an expression of the wrath of God. This, this desire that women found within and to exchange the natural function for the, uh, natural function for the unnatural and the corresponding desire in men for one another rather than for a woman, that this this is an expression of the wrath of God. 
Now, of course, you know and I know that we live in a society, we live in a culture where people don't view homosexuality this way. They don't view it as an expression of the wrath of God. They don't, review, they don't view it as something that is despicable and sinful and perverted and degrading. But it is interesting that Paul uses a different word here for passions than he used when he was talking earlier in verse 24. In verse 24, the word he used there, as I mentioned to you, translated in my translation, lust, is actually the word desires and can be either good or bad. But when we get down to verse 26 and he talks about degrading passions, he uses a different word and this word is only used negatively in the New Testament. It cannot have any good use. And it is a degrading passion. There's something about this desire when it's lived out, when it's carried out, when people do it, that it actually degrades them. So the question, one of the questions I've wrestled with in my mind is, is homosexual sin worse than heterosexual sin? And I think the answer is yes. To the degree that it is further removed from the creation order than heterosexual sin is. And to the degree that it is more degrading, it is more destructive of the human beings who participate it than even heterosexual sin is as destructive and horrific as the effects of heterosexual sin, homosexual sin is worse. Okay? Now, so he says, he says that the door was open then for this homosexual uh, uh, lifestyle and this homosexual sin. Now, there are nowadays in our culture and even within the church, people who want to reinterpret the Bible and want to reinterpret this passage. This is probably the classic passage in all of Scripture, the most definitive passage on the issue of homosexuality. And so those who would promote the idea of homosexuality and homosexual lifestyle have to really work on this passage. And they do. They work overtime on it. Okay? And they do several things with it. Uh, let me catch up in my notes here. So... Uh, They do several things with it. One is, they suggest here that Paul is only speaking here of certain homosexual sins. Okay. So, when Paul's condemning homosexuality here, he's not talking about all homosexuality. He's talking about things like pedophilia and homosexual rape. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And so, this is really the manifestation of God is that people start engaging in homosexual pedophilia and homosexual rape. Okay? And so that's one suggestion they make. Uh, another suggestion that they make, uh, typically, is that when Paul is referring to homosexual acts here as being against nature, what he's really talking about is being against the nature of the person committing it. So, what they, what they read into the passage is the whole concept of sexual orientation. That there are some people who are naturally heterosexual and some people that are naturally homosexual. And so what Paul is really condemning here is that people who are naturally heterosexual committing homosexual acts. Well, that's kind of a disconnect in the first place, you know. Uh, but it does happen, of course. But it's pretty rare, okay. So, so that's 
but that's another argument is that the, the natural function of the woman was well she really was a heterosexual woman but she began to practice homosexuality and, and that's what God is condemning these of course are just simply desperate efforts to reinterpret scripture the concept of sexual orientation was foreign to the ancient world when we read the concept of sexual orientation into Paul's words it's an anachronism we were reading something from the 20th or 21st century back into the 1st century. The concept was absolutely unheard of. As prevalent as homosexuality was in Rome when Paul was writing it, and it was incredibly prevalent. It makes our society look like a Sunday school picnic. Almost all young men practiced homosexuality before they got married. 14 of the first 15 emperors of Rome were homosexuals. This is an absolutely debauched society into which Paul is writing this. But the idea that there was such a thing as a sexual orientation was absolutely foreign, even in that context. So to read it into Paul's writing is to, to read an anachronism into it. Paul's use of the word nature has to do with God's created order as evidenced in creation and restated by Jesus. So when Paul, is, and, and this is a, gets into some fairly involved exegetical uh, work here, but Paul's use of the word nature as opposed to unnatural is clearly a reference to God's created order uh, revealed in Genesis chapter 2 restated by Jesus of God creating man and woman for the purpose of procreation and pleasure okay uh, there's no hint in this passage whatsoever that Paul limits his remarks to only certain homosexual acts and given the context that he's written in where it's just absolutely prolific if he was only talking about certain kinds of homosexual acts he clearly would have said that but he doesn't and the other question is, well, if he's condemning homosexual rape, why isn't he condemning heterosexual rape? Okay? But, uh, so obviously, he's not singling out a certain kind of homosexuality. And so we need to understand clearly, because this is what the passage teaches, that being given over to this is a judgment of God. It's God's response to man's sinful choices. Okay? Well, then that raises a question. I'm just going to address it briefly here and then we'll pick up the, the rest of the passage next week. But this raises a question. Well, because we, we do all this talk about, well, somebody's born homosexual or not born homosexual. All this and, well, that's really kind of, a, I hate to tell you this, but it's not an issue. Uh, if you're born heterosexual, that doesn't give you a license to go out and sleep with every woman on the street. Okay, so if you're born, if you if you are born homosexual, if that's true, and that's never been proved, and I believe never will be proven, but even if it is proved that certain people are born homosexual, that doesn't mean that they are then at liberty to violate the law of God, and God's law is clear. I am not I am not at liberty just because I am born a liar. I am not at liberty to lie. Just because I am born a thief, I am not at liberty to steal. I was born all those ways. I was born a sinner. So, if I was born heterosexual, I am not at free to use my heterosexual any way I please. I must use it within God's context. 
And God makes it very clear that when it comes to homosexual desire, there is no context for it. There is no context under which homosexual desire can be righteously fulfilled. I don't care if it's a monogamous relationship. I don't care if it's between consenting adults. There's no, there's no pattern in Scripture in God's created order under which homosexual act- activity can be good. It's only evil. So then the question, but then the question we still have to wrestle with, well, say somebody's got homosexual desires. Okay. Is what do we think about this drive then that some people obviously do have this homosexual drive what are we to think about it is it sin no it's a result of sin but the desire is not sin it's the fulfillment of the desire that's sin just like if I walk in through Walmart you know, and I see a t-shirt I like and the desire to take it and stick it down the back of my pants may be there. As long as I do, don't do that, I haven't sinned. But the desire to do that is the result of the sinful choices I've made in my life and the sin nature which is in me. Right? So, if I'm walking down the street and I look at a pretty woman and I think I want to go shack up with her, boy, I'd like to do that, but I don't do it, I've resisted the temptation. I have not sinned. The desire to do it, the temptation, was not sin. But the temptation to do it was a product of sin. It was a product of my sinful nature. And whether or not there's some restraining influence on me that keeps me from doing that, i.e. I go up and propose to her and she slaps me in the face, or I simply, in my own heart and, and in my own mind, I go, that's wrong and I'm not going to do it. Whatever the case, I am responsible for my actions. And so if I have these inclinations, these homosexual inclinations in my heart, I must acknowledge from Romans chapter 1 that that's a product of the sinful world in which I live and the sinner which I am. But that does not give me a license to sin. And so I have to choose. And when God removed the restraint on me and gave me the liberty to choose that, that does not give me the freedom to to do that. And if I do that, I incur greater sin and a further expression of God's wrath. So next week, we'll go on and we'll look at what happens when people do that and what God's third response is. So we'll look at the third exchange and we'll look at the third response of God in His wrath uh, and then go on from there. So I can't guarantee we're going to get into chapter 2, so you can work on those study sheets if you'd like. But we've got quite a bit to do yet here in chapter 1.